Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, February 25th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Writer, Swytran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So Brad and Ben are not here with us today, which only means that there's going to be less jokes at the end of the this podcast from the book. Because there's less people, it only makes sense. The math, the math is there. But let's uh, let's dive into it. Let's talk about what we've been you, you up know, to. You know, Peter, suggesting that math equates to humor in any way is evidence of an unfunny mind. <laughs> uh, maybe I don't know. Okay, uh, let's let's move, let's move into what we've been doing. Uh, Ht, it's your birthday week. Happy birthday. Yeah, it's my birthday tomorrow specifically, and um, my mom came to visit me in New York this past weekend to celebrate my birthday a little early. And uh, when she was arriving, she came here and we uh, did our usual thing of eating a lot of great food and um, seeing a Broadway show. And this time around, we saw The Lion King on Broadway, uh, a show that I've been long wanting to see, uh, and I have to say, way better than the live-action remake. Um, so The Lion King on Broadway is um, a long-running Broadway sh- uh, show. I think it's been going on for maybe like uh, how many years? Oh, since 1994, so more than 20 years. It's a long time. Yeah. Uh, I was I was trying to do math and I did not work, so it's okay. <laughs> uh, anyways. Is, is, is it the longest-running show at this point? Maybe? so. Ongoing? It's close. Uh, it must be close. Yeah. For sure. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I was really anticipating it because I um, loved that Lion King in particular amidst all the other Disney live action like Broadway shows uh, does something so creative with its costuming and its production design in that it has the actors dressed in sort of more um, uh, creative versions of the uh animal costumes so there's something that take that um kind of take inspiration from the animals but they're not exactly dressed up as lions per se it kind of is a uh, a um 
mer merging of both like animal costumes as well as sort of traditional African uh, costumes and um, and wardrobe. And I really loved, I've always really loved that whenever I saw like pictures from it. And now I finally got to see it on stage. And um, one thing that really struck me aside from like how great the music is and how really that's this music by Ellen John and um, Tim Rice uh, really just like hold up still. I um, really, I enjoyed quite a bit the use of shadow puppetry in the show, which I didn't realize was going to be such a big thing. It kind of uh, lends to the overall sort of uh, fable like um, ancient uh, texture of this show. And shadow puppetry is sort of like an ancient uh, storytelling art form that is uh, used commonly in Asia as well as across, across um, uh, Africa, I'm assuming. And uh, I, I've always really, I remember like actually when I was in Vietnam recently, there was a lot of shadow puppet uh, sort of um, uh, models that I was that I saw when I was like looking through museums there, so it was a really nice surprise to see it on stage in a current day Broadway show, and uh, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was so cool and it lent such a fun uh, dynamism to the show itself. And yeah, it's it's fantastic. Um, I love to hear the. Um, the song He Lives in You on stage because that was a song that was originally written for the Lion King musical. And uh, the first time I heard it was in the Lion King uh, directed video sequel. Um, was it Simba's Pride? Because uh, the song uh, was created originally for the Broadway musical and it was so good that they ended up using it for the directed video um, animated sequel. And so I, it was so cool to see it in its element um, in the original form that it took place. So yeah, it's fantastic, the Lion King. So what you're saying, HT, is The Lion King on Broadway is a better live-action adaptation of The Lion King than The Lion King live-action adaptation? Yeah, you know, I'd say so. <laughs> and, it, and it probably contains more live-action. It definitely contains more live-action. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been reading. I haven't been reading anything, but I'm excited to read Star Wars The High Republic. I mentioned on yesterday's podcast that I was going to Disney Studios for a press event where they were going to be revealing what Project Luminous is. And this is something that they teased at Star Wars Celebration in 2019. And it's this big publishing program that's going to have interconnected stories across multiple publishers in a new part of the Star Wars timeline. Uh, it was revealed that it is being called Star Wars The High Republic, and this is a new era in the Star Wars uh, universe. It, it takes place 200 years before Phantom Menace, so 200 years before the Skywalker saga, and it um, it's going to show an era when the Galactic Republic and the Jedi Order were at the height of their power, and uh, it was a hopeful, optimistic time, and there isn't uh, really, like, you know, there isn't, like, the Empire. There isn't, like, a big, evil, like, group of faceless, you know, armored people. Trying, But there is some bad guys. Uh, I guess the – from what I understand, they, they – there was three touch tones to what they wanted to do here. One of them is that quote from Star Wars A New Hope, um, the Obi-Wan quote of, for over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic – before the dark times, before the Empire. Um, you know, that's a quote that we've thought about for many, you know, decades now, being like, well, what, what were the times like? Um, and they, they wanted to make something kind of about that. And also, they had the question, what 
what scares a Jedi? What what is scary to a Jedi? Like what um what are they afraid of? And that's something they wanted to explore here. What we know, what the, the answer to that, I don't know. We're gonna have to read this. Um, and the other thing they wanted to do is like show something new, new, new. They wanted to do something completely different than what we've seen in Star Wars before. Um, some of the the covers that they released feature like Wookiee Jedi, and uh, you know, it looks very like Knights of the Old uh, Republic or Knights of the Round Table, like Jedi style. And uh, I'm really excited for this. They have a series of books. It's going to be a phase one. Uh, the one I'm looking forward to most is from Charles Soule, who has done a lot of the Star Wars comics. I first discovered him, I think, with uh, Letter 44. He's done a bunch of comic stuff. Uh, I know he has a novel of his own, which was highly acclaimed, um, an original no- novel. He is doing an adult novel, which is going to kind of uh, you know, spark this whole thing. It's going to start off this whole era in the Star Wars universe is called Light of the Jedi, and it's going to be kind of like a primer introducing this, uh, you know, this time in Star Wars, which I guess starts with this inciting incident, uh, something called the Great Disaster, which we don't know what that means, but um, it's going to be something that's going to reach the far corners of the galaxy. Um, I don't know. The, the images here from this are very exciting. It's going to cross over from comics to books to young adult novels to ch- children novels. Uh, there's a bunch of other publishers that have gotten uh, signed on to possibly get involved in Phase 2. So it seems like they're trying to do like a Marvel Cinematic Universe, but of like books. And, um, you know, there's the potential that this area of the Star Wars universe could be explored in future video games, television shows, and possibly movies. So I think they're kind of like setting the canning ground for for more. And it, it's kind of it's kind of exciting. Like I I know um I haven't loved a lot of the Star Wars books so far, but I do love uh Charles Soule and I do love uh Claudia Gray and they're two of the authors that are involved in this and uh they, they kind of met they had like the the whole group of authors meet at Skywalker Ranch for like a week retreat and plan out this whole thing. And they're it's actually they they released this trailer online. I'll I'll link to it in the show notes. Um but it, it, it kind of talks about, like, how they came up with this. And there, there's one point, if you pause, and I, I have a picture in our article on Slashfilm.com, where they're, they, they they said that they were in the room at Skywalker Ranch for just a day. Before they even talked about, like, story points or ideas, they just were talking about what the Star Wars mean. What is a good Star Wars story? Uh, what would they like to see in a good Star Wars story, like, in broad ideas? And in the trailer, and I screen capped this on Slashfilm.com, there's this like white picture of a whiteboard with them like writing down what they love about Star Wars, what they love about fiction, and what they would like to see in Star Wars. And like in that list, there's like some interesting stuff, but there's also uh, dinosaurs. So, <laughs> so it could get crazy. Uh, I'm I'm kind of excited for this, uh, and I, I think it could be bigger than just books and stuff like that and we're also in a time they, they mentioned this at the beginning of the presentation like that you know after the original trilogy ended uh you know and before we got the prequel movies it was a time where the books and the action figures were basically all that star wars had to kind of tell the stories and it's we're kind of entering that time again i know we have some tv stuff coming up but um i don't know it, it's kind of exciting i'm excited for it you can read my whole article on that on slashfilm.com i'll link that uh, but Jacob, you've actually been doing some reading. 
yes, I started reading Nobody Does It Better, The Complete, Uncensored, Unauthorized History of James Bond. Uh, this is a new book from uh, Edward Gross and Mark A. Altman. Uh, they've been doing a lot of these uh, oral history books, these are heavily researched, but not authorized uh, oral histories. I did a two-part uh, series on Star Trek with the first book covering the original series, the second book covering the next generation and all the spinoffs. And they did a Battlestar Galactica book that covered the entire, you know, Battlestar Galactica saga from the early TV shows up to the new one. And these books are, are they feel comprehensive. Each one's like 800 pages long. They're bricks. You lug them around, you can kill someone with them. And they're not casual reading. Like there's so much information in these books uh, from so many different sources and opinions that you got to be kind of dedicated to the subject in order to really appreciate it and enjoy it. Uh, if I was a casual James Bond fan, I wouldn't recommend this because it's just so in-depth and so uh, caught up in details and geeky things and nerdery that only like a dedicated fan will care to know and will like want to go through 800 pages to learn. But if you're a fan of uh, any of those things I mentioned, these guys' books are, they feel like just the comprehensive you know, breakdown of here's everybody talking about this thing uh, from all angles. And the, the, the subjects in this range from people who are actively involved in James Bond to historians, to uh, online writers, to filmmakers who just have a perspective on certain films and actors. And uh, I really enjoy these guys' books. And this one, even though I'm barely into it, I'm like 50 pages into an 800-page book, uh, it feels like another one of those. And I happen to really enjoy them. So that is Nobody Does It Better, The Complete, Uncensored, Unauthorized Oral History of James Bond. It's available now. Very cool. And HD, you've also been reading? Yes. Uh, if you guys remember, I joined a book club recently, and the book that we've started for this coming month is Circe by Madeline Miller. Um, this is kind of my doing. I've been wanting to read this book for a while since um, it came out in 2018 and became a New York Times bestseller and sort of like the new hyped book of the year. Um, and I convinced my book club to do it. So it's a win for me. So uh, Circe by Madeline Miller is a feminist reimagining of the character from The Odyssey. You might remember she is the character who um, in The Odyssey encounters uh, Odysseus's men. And uh, she's a sorceress who has the ability to turn men into pigs. And she does so to Odysseus's men. And um, I think Odysseus ends up tricking her and freeing his men. But uh, she was always sort of depicted in the epic and in pop culture as this wrathful uh, female character um, who is generally pretty evil. But Cersei uh, does a good job of sympathizing and empathizing with her and creating a compassionate and you know, female forward version of this character. I always really uh, enjoy Greek myth retellings and reimaginings. So uh, I'm really excited to dive into Circe. I haven't uh, gotten very far. I've only uh, read a couple pages so far, but I'm liking it quite a bit and I'm excited to see how it turns out. And it'll be an HBO series uh, eventually. Oh, you keep informing me of these things. I don't know them, Jacob. Well, you, you, you wrote our article about it last year, but I guess. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, this happens to me all the time. I, I find out about something and then I realize I wrote an article about it five years ago. So, <laughs> but yeah, I just pulled up because I knew it sounded familiar. Uh, I have not read this, but I do remember us reporting on HBO about the rights. So, uh, HG, you'll be able to be our expert on this when all is said and done. You know what? I think I actually remember writing about this and being like, this sounds interesting. I want to read it. And saying that in the post <laughs> itself and probably repeating exactly what I said here. So, <laughs> that's funny. That is hilarious. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. I 
watched the first episode of Star Wars The Clone Wars Season 7. This is the final season of the series. It's on Disney+. Plus, and uh, I like it. Um, I've never been a huge fan of The Clone Wars. I, I, to be honest, I didn't finish all the episodes. I, I think I've only watched the first two seasons. I'm not, like, the biggest fan of, like, the prequel era of Star Wars, which is weird because I'm a fan of almost everything Star Wars. Uh, I loved Rebels, so it's not like I don't like the animated stuff. It's, uh, But uh, th- th- I- I'm in it. I'm going to watch the season. Uh, I'm excited to see where it goes, and uh, especially when it gets further away from, like, Anakin and, like, the main storyline. Uh, I-, I like to see, you know, what what's going on in this universe. So I- I'm in, but uh, I wasn't, like... You know, seeing this first episode, it wasn't like when I saw the first episode of Star Wars Rebels, and I was like, "Wow, this is cool." But um, yeah, uh, and actually, strangely, I want to mention this because this show is on Disney Plus, and when you log into the Disney Plus interface, there was this big banner ad at the top of the Disney Plus interface, and it was like, you know, the first episode of Clone Wars season seven is out. Watch it now, and I clicked on that on that uh, banner, right, to play the episode. And it starts playing this episode about Yoda fighting some, like, battle droids and stuff. And I, I was, like, enjoying the episode, but I was like, I, this seems vaguely familiar. And then by the time we got to the, the end of the episode, it started playing episode two of season one of The Clone Wars. And I realized that I had just rewatched season one, episode one of The Clone Wars, and it, that that link didn't go to the new season, but it went to the beginning of the series. So... I don't know. That's something they need to fix because that was a little confusing for me. Uh, not, not that people, many people are going to jump in at season se- in the final season of a, a show, but um, it's it. I'm sure a lot of people didn't watch, you know, the other six seasons on this platform, and they're going to click that link, and it's going to go to episode one of season one. So that was just a little weird. Uh, and it, it was funny that I didn't really realize it until the end of the episode. I was kind of like, this is kind of strange for a first episode of the final season. It like, doesn't really establish much. Um, but, uh, yeah. I also I went to the movie theater, and I saw Birds of Prey. It was much better than I thought it was going to be. Uh, I don't think it was great, but I think it's good. I Margot Robbie is, you know, she's firing on all cylinders. Uh, I like the bonkers nature of this film when it when it goes for crazy. That's when I like it the best. And I wish they did more with like kind of the the playing with the narrative timeline and like skipping back and forward and, and stuff like that. Uh, the the action is really great. Uh, the the story and, and the characters are good, but the story not so much. I feel like the story is kind of like the 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 weak point of this. And I I really wish that this was released in, as a PG thirteen movie because I feel like a lot more people would have seen this if this was released as a PG thirteen movie called Harley Quinn. A lot more people would have seen this movie, in my opinion. Like, I feel like that was a major downfall. Like, this was not a Deadpool kind of thing that really required an R rating. I I know it had some violence and stuff, but I think you could have still gotten that PG thirteen rating. I'm I'm wondering what you guys think because I know HC and Jacob, you you were big fans of this. Yeah. Um. Honestly, I kind of agree with you. I do remember. I do did enjoy like how hard it went in on the violence and how it felt very much in line with Harley Quinn's character and the world that she lives in. But I, I wish that, that this movie had gotten more traction than it did. And, um, some, there are ways of, I think of working around the violence and even 
the action, action sequences uh, as John Wickian as they felt don't even get as intense or as bone crunching as a lot of the John Wick uh, fight scenes are. So, yeah, I, I actually say that that might have helped the film a lot. Jacob, what, what are your thoughts? Would that have taken out the, the crunch from this or something? I'm not sure. I mean, the violence is not the reason for the R rating here. I think the violence is, you know, a hard PG-13. But I, I think there's a lot of uh, really funny F-bombs in this movie. I would I would have been disappointed to lose those. Uh, but, yeah, it's not even it's not even a particularly hard R. It's just, it's just it's not, like, not even nearly as violent as Deadpool. But yeah. I don't know. I think the comedy benefits more than the action from the R rating. So uh, I'm not so sure. I, I'm kind of of two minds on it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I also I went to a press screening of Onward, the new movie from Pixar. Uh, this is a very heartfelt road trip adventure story, and it feels it feels kind of like a mashup of two different ideas. Like uh, director Dan Scanlon had this whole idea. I, I think it was based on he either found or his mom gave him a box of stuff from his dad and he was looking at photos and reading like this notebook or I, I could be getting this story completely wrong but uh he he was like it was kind of like having this connection with his dead father who he never really had this relationship with and that that's what kind of spawned this movie uh but it's also set in this like world of fantasy which is kind of like been you know people used to do there used to be wizards there used to be magical creatures and there used to be spells and stuff and then along came technology and because technology was an easier way of doing things like the the old ways fell to nothingness and like they're not even remembered like people don't even remember those days like they play you know dungeons dragons types games and that to them is kind of like what superheroes are to us it's not something that ever existed and um I feel like it's two different ideas that were kind of like mashed together to create this this story and it doesn't quite pick a lane into which of those ideas it wants to do. And I think it's more successful um, when it does the more heartfelt uh, approach to it. Um, but it, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of people aren't going to get over like these characters look so much like like DreamWorks looking designs and they're kind of like not as attractive or as exciting as a normal Pixar movie. Uh, I, I liked it. Um, I don't think it's a great uh, Pixar film, but it, it is a good one. And uh, I would recommend it. See onward. Um, at home, I've been watching a lot of Netflix with Kitra and we, uh, what should I start out with first? You know, I'll talk about cheer. I watched uh, this new Netflix, uh, reality series documentary series i don't know what you would call it have, have any of you guys seen cheer uh, i've seen cheer this is definitely a documentary series it has no yeah. at all so yeah no i it's definitely and by the way like when did that become a thing like i know like you know there's been like true crime documentary series that have been around but i feel like we haven't gotten many like documentary series that they follow people around and it's not talk just like talking head interviews and reenactments like McMillions or something like that where it's like you know you're like seeing you know spellbound or you're seeing uh what's that ba- uh, basketball not basketball diaries what was that big documentary from like the 80s or early 90s do you know what i'm talking hoop about dream? uh, hoop dreams hoop dreams sorry hoop dreams it's like it's kind of like we're seeing hoop dreams as like a, a tv series and i'm i'm loving that we're now getting like the documentary 
art form on the television in in a way like that uh you know not just like the talking head stuff but like actually following people around and, and, and seeing their stories and it not being a reality tv show where there's a game or there that the people in it are financially motivated to you know be acting a fool and doing things um this is about this documentary series is about uh, junior college in Texas, which is one of the best in the country. Uh, there's six episodes. Um, I binged them all in one night. And this is kind of like if you enjoyed Friday Night Lights. And I'm not even a sports person. I I hate sports. But I love Friday Night Lights. And this is very much like Friday Night Lights, but in the world of cheerleading. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, because this um, – I don't want to spoil this. Like the, the this uh this group, this uh junior college that they're following, uh, this cheer group, they they have made it to the finals, like almost every single year for like the past decade or something like that. So the fact that they they're going to make it to the finals here is not a surprise at all. Um, but it, it is interesting that Varsity, the company that runs cheerleading in the United States, uh, they don't allow cameras. And camera crews at the championship events. So, like, you have this, like, great cinematic uh, show, which it's just so many characters that, like, you feel for and that you're rooting for. And, like, some stories that you, you, I don't know, it's just such a great show. And then it gets up to this final episode where they're at the championships. And because Varsity are are dickbags, they had to shoot it with iPhones from people that were, like, in the crowd and, like, you know, I guess team members on the sideline and stuff. And uh, it was just like such a like anticlimactic uh, cinematic ending to the, the, the show. But I, I, I really can't recommend this show enough. Uh, Jacob, it sounded like, did you like the show? Yeah. The Friday night comparison is apt in that it's about uh, very much about the clash of culture of small Texas town versus, you know, the youth of that town, uh, either from it or ne- or not from it. And it's just as much a portrait of, you know, this type of existence, like living in rural conservative Texas as it is about cheerleading. And the clash of cultures is just as, just as interesting as the sports story. And, yeah, if you, like me and Peter, like Friday Night Lights, the TV series, this will scratch a very similar itch. I, I was really uh, taken by this. Yeah, you, you'll be really rooting for certain people to succeed. And it, it's really uh, heartwarming. It, 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 it's good. It's like real. It's as real as it can get. Um, okay. Uh, the other thing I watched is this show on Netflix called Love is Blind. Have any of you heard of this? I've heard of it like that. It was a show on Netflix that you don't see the other person that you're blind dating. Is that the case? Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, let me back up and say that I, while I do watch some reality television, I, you know, I watched Survivor and I, I used to watch a show called Million Dollar, Million Dollar Listing. I'm not a big reality TV guy, and I, I definitely do not watch, like, Bachelor and, and those kind of shows. Like, I've seen episodes, and it's just so not my thing and not interesting to me and not something I want to spend my time watching on TV. No, no offense to those people that do, uh, but I'm just putting you in my headspace here that, the, because I got so uh, wrapped up in this Love is Blind, which is so stupid. It's it's so ridiculous and stupid, but it's so bingeable and fun. Um, it is a show that begins where they are in a, 
a studio where uh, there's probably like a dozen men living in a house together and there's a dozen women living in a house together and every day they get up and what connects those two houses are these series of pods and by the way these houses are in a sound stage so whatever um but what connects these two houses are, are these pods where a woman will get in one pod and the men will get into another that's next to it and they will have a date but they'll have a date without seeing each other they can only hear each other and uh you know for like i think over a week the, the p- men were dating women on the other side and the only way that they can actually meet each other is if they actually propose and decide to get married so the, the idea is like can they make a connection on the level without ever seeing the other person um i will say this isn't like one of those things where like some of these people are unattractive and that you know at the end when they decide to get married and they finally meet like it's like oh my god this guy is totally not what you know whatever um all these people are very like attractive people so it's not like one of those kind of things but it is one of those things where like you know one uh uh, th- there is an African-American woman who met a guy and didn't know if the guy was was black or not and found out sh- he was white and she had never d- dated a white man before. So that that was kind of a realization. Um, it's I thought this whole show was going to be this these these blind dates, um, but it, it is a bit more than that. And, oh, and it should also be say it, it's interesting because the pool of guys that are living together are, are you know, they're. I want to say competing, but they're they're dating the same women, right? So they're all like dating from the same pool, and the women are dating from the same pool of men, and it it, it kind of gets catty at moments of like because some of them are interested in the same ones, and it's it's I guess in the end like you know uh, I guess spoiler alert, but in every case in the in the show the guy proposes to the girl, um, so it, it's like who is the guy going to choose? Um, and the show is more than that. It goes on to after they, they propose and meet, they go to Mexico on a vacation for like a week. And then from there, they go and have to uh, go back to reality, meet their families, uh, see their where they live and, and get married. Uh, one of the most interesting things about this, this show in terms of a Netflix construct, and I only, I only started watching it this week, but apparently this was like a three-week event. So this is not going by Netflix's traditional, you know, binge the whole series thing. Like, I guess they released probably like a few episodes one week and then a few episodes the next week. And then I'm still waiting to see the last episode, the marriage episode, where I think they've been teasing that someone, at least one person is not, is going to like flake out and the marriage isn't going to happen. Um, so it, it's interesting that Netflix is getting into the world of, you know, water cooler television and uh it seems like a lot of people on my feed are talking about this show um so what were you saying Uh, i was gonna say netflix has been doing that for several of their reality shows oh have they and yeah um but it's only been pretty recent uh but i'd say uh the the circle was a kind of the same um water cooler word of mouth uh thing that uh uh, love is blind is enjoying right now so it, it sounds somewhat similar too. I feel like Netflix is kind of making, carving out a really interesting, almost social experiment type of reality show going like right now. But yeah, um, yeah that, that sounds fun. Yeah, I'm not sure how interesting this sounds to you guys, but it, it is extremely interesting watching it because of the, the social dynamics of it. Because even after like the, 
you know, the men who choose, you know, uh, propose to the women and they go off to Mexico. Then they're in Mexico together as a group of people. And some of those people didn't necessarily get their or, or I'll say one of the women wanted one of the men and that man did not propose to her. So she ended up going with her second choice, per se. And now she's like, you know, in Mexico on this vacation with her fiance, but also the person who she wanted the most. I don't know. It, 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 it's very interesting social dynamics. I and... have to, I have to weigh in here and say, this sounds like an absolute nightmare. And I'm horrified <laughs> at this entire conversation. It, it is. It's, I don't know. I, I feel like if I had heard one of you guys say this about the show, I would feel like I'm not that interested in the show, but it's, it's so compelling. It's so, trashy bad but like you can't stop watching and i i can't wait for this final episode to see 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 what happens um but yeah so that is love is blind i would highly recommend that on netflix and again i'm not a person that's into this kind of stuff so take that for what it's worth chris what have you been watching uh i saw brahms the boy too which is the sequel to The Boy. And in this film, um, a family moves into a house and this house has a pod in it and Brahms is in the pod and they have to propose to Brahms. (laughs) I mean, that would probably make it a better movie, right? (laughs) No, that actually would make it a better movie. That's not what happens in Brahms The Boy 2. Brahms The Boy 2 is a sequel almost in name only. So spoilers for the original boy, the, the, the boy, um, you know, that movie was set up to make it look like, ah, the doll is alive, you know, like Chucky. But the twist in that movie is, oh, never mind. The doll wasn't alive. There was a guy hiding in the walls manipulating the doll, which um, is a ripoff of the movie housebound, but also kind of okay. You know, the, the first, the boy is fine. It's better than it has any right to be so this one it's the same director so i was like all right maybe this sequel brahms the boy 2 will be good but no it was not good and it pretty much ignores everything that happened in the first movie and in this one brahms the doll is very much alive which is just jarring because it's like why why are you like going with this plot line when you've already established the doll was not alive in the last movie i don't know it was not a good movie at all, and I regret having sat through it. See, I knew it was a bad movie when it was called Brahms the Boys 2, or The Boy 2. No, that's the only part I like is the title. I just, I just love saying Brahms the Boy 2. Brahms Hive. That's right. I am the founder of the Brahms Hive. See, I didn't even get it that, like, was the boy really that successful that there's a, they needed a sequel? I mean, I I know the bar is lower in a horror genre. Like, you don't have to make as much to get a sequel. Plus, it was, like, really – I think, like, the first one cost, like, $5 million to make. So, it's, like – it was, like, impossible for that to not be a hit. And I think this one cost, like, $6 million. So, I'm sure this one will make enough money that they'll be like, we have to make The Boy 3. And I'll probably have to sit through that as well. (laughs) Okay. While Chris was watching Brahms The Boy 2, HD, what were you watching? 
I was watching The Call of the Wild, which is the adaptation of the Jack London book of the same name, directed by Chris Sanders, and starring Harrison Ford, who I will happily report is not phoning it in in this movie. He's, you know, he's doing his his best grisly, wary, survivalist um, performance, and he's actually, like, not too bad in this film, which stars a very uncanny computer-animated uh, motion-captured dog. Uh, it's... Uh, it's honestly a serviceable, uh, heartfelt survival story slash adventure um, that adapts some of the the broad strokes of Jack London's book. But um, the uncanny dog really just takes you out of the movie. But halfway through, I was I realized that um, the the dog uh, called Buck, who is a um, a giant. Um, St. Bernard Scotch Collie hybrid dog who gets kidnapped from his comfy Santa Clara home and taken to the wilds of um, Yukon in Canada is um, sort of, he's so large and giant and every time he interacts with the world the physics just seems so off I realized that that was sort of intentional and that they almost it gives this real cartoonish veneer to the whole film and um while that I could see why it was being intentional I wondered why this film just wasn't an animated movie to begin with because Chris Sanders does come from the animation side he directed or co-directed uh, Lilo and Stitch, uh, How to Train Your Dragon, and he brings a lot of that sort of animation um, dynamism to this movie, uh, which you know kind of sits oddly with the gritty adventure story within it. So it just, I just felt like this movie would have been vastly improved if it was an animated movie, and um, then it could actually do some of the more um, big set pieces and uh, without having to fall back on the reality so yeah call of the wild it's all right but it really is just so uncanny and bizarre that they use an, a computer animated dog in this case have, have you seen any of the footage that's been online of like the original footage where it's like a like a man in a motion capture suit as the dog before they like replaced him yeah it's it's weird <laughs> it's weird it's almost as weird as it looks in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay, what else have you been watching? Um, I watched uh, another film that I reviewed for the site called My Hero Academia, Heroes Rising. And this is the second theatrical feature film for My Hero Academia, which is the currently airing um, popular action anime series. Uh, it's a superhero se series that I think I've talked about before um, that kind of is like the anime... Um, reflection of superhero and American comic uh, lore and and the love and the mythology around that and kind of reflected through the anime lens. And it does it in a really fun and wacky way. And um, the series itself is kind of like the uh, the shonen, which is um, shonen anime, which is like the, the categorization for boy... Um, targeted anime like action anime in general it kind of has perfected the shonen anime formula to a t and feels very familiar in that case but um it it is really fun it is uh, really fun to watch um so this is the second uh theatrical film for it the first one was called two heroes which i you know liked uh somewhat and um heroes rising is all right it's um it's 
very much a theatrical movie for an ongoing anime series in that it's not canon. It kind of feels very much like a piece of fan service filler episode that is a treat for longtime viewers or um, hardcore viewers of the anime series, but not really for anyone else. Um, Heroes Rising follows the class of uh, superheroes in this world. Um, I'll People have evolved to have superpowers, and um, there is a school, essentially, that helps teach and train the uh, aspiring heroes to become professional heroes. And um, the protagonist is part of a class called 1A, and they get assigned over the summer to be the temporary heroes for this remote beachside island, uh, which is very peaceful, so they don't anticipate having any um, sort of violent flight. Uh, fights or clashes with villains who have also organized in large numbers because of the the large number of people who have superpowers. So, but of course, they end up fighting with a group of villains who want to steal the superpowers of one young boy on the island. And um, it's yeah, it's basically really fine. The animation is stellar. The fight sequences are really inventive and honestly, some of the best that we've seen in My Hero Academia. I will say that in recent episodes of My Hero Academia, the fights have been a little bit lackluster, so it was really exciting to see that they haven't lost their touch yet with this um, big-budget movie, or maybe they were saving it all for the movie. Uh, but the plot is, is really recycled and um, very much just a rip-off of... And the villain is very much just a rip-off of a, um, an actual villain in the series. So uh, kind of a disappointment, but um, worth watch if you are a fan of My Hero Academia and you want to see just really fantastic and fantastical uh, pulpy a- action sequences. Cool. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched Brightburn, which is streaming, I believe, on Amazon right now. This came out last year. Nobody saw it. I know Chris reviewed it for us, and I liked it quite a bit. This is um, David Yuroveski. He's a uh, horror film director. He's uh, and he's uh, in real life friends with James Gunn, who helped get this movie made. It didn't help the box office, but um, it has a lot of James Gunn regulars in it. Uh, and basically, the basic pitch of this movie is: what if Superman came on Earth as a kid in the same basic origin story, uh, but instead of raise, uh, becoming a good person, he became a serial killer. Essentially, if Michael Myers and Superman became one character, <laughs> that's a bright burn. And um, it is an unbelievably nasty movie. It is, there's a couple scenes of violence in this film that had me shrieking in my in, in the couch, and I, I'm so immune to most horror movie violence at this point. Uh, one moment involving a character's jaw coming off in particular uh, was very, very upsetting. Um, so it's not a movie for everybody. It's, it's a movie that was kind of like they tried to sell it as, you know, from producer James Gunn, when it really should be for all you horror maniacs who like horrible, horrifying things. Here you go. And, and that's, that's who the audience here is. Like, it's a slasher film where the slasher happens to be capable of flight and super strength and have laser eyes. And I got a kick out of it. Uh, I think Elizabeth Banks uh, and David Denman is the parents to the Superman villain are uh, really, really do a good job of grounding how chaotic things get. And it's just a really messy, nasty, gory thing. And I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think it's going to find a cult audience as as people discover it on streaming on video. Because I think trying to release this as a big, glossy movie uh, and sell it that way was a huge mistake. They should have been going for the Blumhouse audience. Uh, Chris, it's been about a year for you. Does Brightburn hold up in your memory, especially the jaw scene? Yeah, I've actually been meaning to rewatch it. Um, I I really like this uh, pretty much for the same reasons you did. I it is uh, I was really taken aback when I saw it in theaters at how 
brutal it was. I was not expecting it, even though, you know, I knew it was rated R. I was not expecting it to be as gory as it was. And I, I kind of love that about it. And yeah, I, I agree that I, you know, if they had planned the release of this a little better, like I almost wish, I don't want to say dumped it on Netflix, but I wish they had like made this like a big Netflix release. Cause I feel like if people were at home and they were like, Oh, I'll watch this. It would have gotten like, a lot more buzz like you know if bird box can become a huge hit this could have become a huge hit too on netflix and it's a shame that more people didn't see it because i would have loved like an entire franchise about this like this kid growing off to become full-blown evil superman like i would gladly watch like a sequel to this but i'm sure that'll never happen because it made zero dollars yeah there's a uh, credit stinger that teases horror versions of the rest of the justice league i was like oh man i kind of wish we could have seen those as well uh, but yeah, that's uh, Brightburn. I say it's either Amazon or Stars via Amazon. But yeah, it, it's it's worth checking out. Very cool. What else have you been watching? Uh, I watched Slender Man. Uh, this is the exact opposite of Brightburn. It is a horror movie that made no money and is awful. It is streaming on. Uh, this one's through Stars. We, we we have Stars for the month because my wife is watching a new season of Outlander, so we're burning through as much Stars as we can. Slender Man, of course, is a film adaptation of the popular creepypasta internet myth character. Uh, infamous in real life because he inspired some real murders uh, and this movie is not based on the real life stuff it's based on a group of teenage girls who summon the mythological slender man and he this pops up suddenly throughout a couple of days and ruins their lives and gets them killed and it is pg-13 diet coke horror movie nonsense it is nothing in it is scary there's no clever imagery uh the fact that there's so many cheap photoshops of uh, people have made over 10 years of who here's Slender man look inside inside his photograph and they go oh that's a creepy photograph that's a creepy image you can see why he's popular by scouring the internet the fact that this movie has not a single moment as creepy as like the most basic slender man creepypasta image out there is a huge problem i don't know i'm, I'm not this character probably uh, lot has been a little less relevant to past five years because he's been you know He's gone from being a creepy internet thing to being a mainstream thing uh, and part of a real true crime thing. And I just feel like five years ago with a different script, different director would have been the time to strike on this. But this movie is uh, I am just deeply offended by how generic it is. Like you're given a character who uh, holds a certain amount of cultural weight at this point. And you do nothing with it. It is just a completely shallow, not even half baked, unbaked thing. Uh, so don't watch Slender Man. It's very bad. Okay, I, I wasn't planning on watching it, but now I will definitely not rewatch it or watch it. But you have been rewatching something. You've been rewatching The Office. Yeah, for the first time uh, since I watched it live, I've been completely watching Office straight through. My wife has never seen it, and with it leaving Netflix soon to go to Peacock, and I don't know if I'll be subscribing to Peacock, I want to go ahead and uh, give it a watch all the way through. And this show really does hold up. Uh, there are certain moments here and there that reflect the times. Uh, same same feeling you get when you watch a lot of older sitcoms. But like this was a definitive sitcom of the 2000s, and for good reason. I mean, I think seasons two through five are absolutely wonderful, like genuinely great television. Uh, so funny, so warm, so uncomfortable, so real. And even as it got sillier and crazier as it went on, it never lost touch of its characters and who they are and what they wanted. And season six and seven are, are, are still pretty good. Eight is better when you binge it. Watching eight season eight week to week back when it aired was a grueling test of my endurance. Uh, and nine, once they start wrapping things up, the final stretch of nine is very, very good. They, they Once they realized it was coming to an end, they were able to really start putting things away. And I have two episodes left. They have the final two episodes are both hour-longs, and 
I remember being very moved by them uh, when they first aired. So I'm looking forward to watching those tonight, and I'll report back next week. But yeah, The Office, uh, there's a reason why This and Friends are shows that you know everybody's willing to pay so much money for, and the reason why they're such huge hits years and years after they're out on, on streaming services is because they're just such a well-done comfort food television, and you can, they're so rewatchable, and, and spending time with these characters. I mean, I think that's the problem with so many made-to-stream sitcoms is that they're so focused on you know telling their story in 13 episodes that the 24 episode seasons of just well done comfort food television where you feel like you kind of feel like you're hanging out with friends. And I feel like modern <laughs> comedies don't have that vibe just because of shorter seasons and streaming audience habits. But I'm curious to see if the success ongoing success of friends in the office uh, on streaming maybe keeps this kind of uh, show alive. Uh, and I hope so. Why, why don't you want the peacock Jacob? Why, why not? Uh, because there, uh, there's, I don't know yet. Like I, when I look at like the HBO max library, I'm like, yeah, that's stuff I want to watch. Then I look at NBC Library. I'm going, maybe we'll see. We'll, we'll see what the Universal Films are to back it up. But we'll see. I, I can only afford so many streaming services. And Peacock, with his terrible name, already is down a <laughs> rung. It's got it's got a really wow with the library. Like I'm, like my whole thing is like, do I really need Disney Plus year round with HBO Max coming? I'm, I have to juggle things here. So we'll see. I, I also have to re- unsubscribe from Stars when Outlander's over. So it, it, I, I, I got to figure all this out. Okay. Um, let, let's go on to what we've been playing. Uh, I've, I'm the only one that's been playing anything this week, apparently. Uh, I went to Disneyland. Uh, they, they, at, at Galaxy's Edge, they have a ride called Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run. And this is a ride where you get to board the Millennium Falcon and not just go on a like motion simulator adventure, but you actually get to pilot it or be a gunner or be the engineer and take it on this flight to obtain this, uh, this whole coaxium thing. Um, and this ride has been open since what, like June or whenever, whenever it opened last year. Uh, it, but like I said, it's not just a ride. It's also a game. And it's interesting because people are still figuring things out for this, uh, this ride. They, over the weekend, a report came out that uh, that there was a way to unlock an Easter egg or unlock an alternate game mode in this ride. Um, and I, J- Jacob, you could tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that's a thing that's like common in video games, right? Like there's like codes or like things that you could like if you do a series of movements in a certain corner of a room, then like a developer has put like a secret thing in the game to unlock. Yeah, uh, like old-fashioned codes like that are rarer these days because they'd rather sell them as DLC unless you have them for free. Uh, but yeah, um, it's baked into the DNA of video games. You, you insert, you like up, down, up, down, left, right, A on the controller, and oh, you have unlimited ammo, stuff like that. Yeah, in in this one, you do a series of uh, motions. I'll put a link to the uh, the video that we recorded in Galaxy's Edge in the show notes. But basically, if you do a series of how you activate. The when you sit into the chair, you have to press a button to activate, and you have to. If you do something a little bit differently, it activates what they call Chewbacca mode, which uh, is instead of like normally on the ride, you're on this ride, and Hondo is like in your ear and he's on the screen telling you what to do and stuff like that. Instead, if you activate Chewbacca mode, it replaces Hondo with Chewbacca, and he and and Chewie is just basically yelling at you. And, and you know, roaring and Wookie and like expressing his disappointment as you destroy his ship uh, throughout the ride. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's it, I I just think it's funny that like you know this 
land opened more than six months ago, and this has been something that's been in the ride that we've only just found out about now. It's not something that was added because I was able to find this like old uh, Reddit and Discord post from like August of someone that like said that like a girl that was like the daughter of the the developer that made the ride like told her about uh looking mode no one believed this guy at the time and because he didn't know how to actually activate it correctly but uh, i apparently there's other modes in there that can be unlocked so it's gonna be interesting uh, as he like now with the gamification of 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 theme park attractions that there'll be like alternate modes that can be unlocked with like codes and stuff like that i i think that's just kind of exciting and fun uh, but you can watch the video where Kitra and I went on the ride and unlocked Chewy mode. Uh, I'll put the link in the show notes. But that does it for us today on Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Peter. Yeah, yeah. We only have three people, so three insults. The math uh, it, yeah, it well, lines up. Yeah, uh, math. Is, is, I was never good at math in school, Peter. I, I was always the class clown. The class <laughs> clown. Anyway, I have the gargantuan <laughs> book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, and implied put-downs. Wait, 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 wait. Let's rewind here. What, what, what kind of things would you do in, in the class? What, what kind of clowny things? When the teacher wasn't looking, I'd light her purse on fire. <laughs> okay, go on. Let's, let's... <laughs> anyway, I have in front of me the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, reposts, caustic quips, and implied put-downs by Louis A. Safian. I've opened up to... Page 265, Dumbbells. Peter, the only way you can make up your mind is to powder your forehead. Uh, Oh, because I'm putting makeup on my head. I, I get the, it. The only way you can make up your mind is to powder your forehead. It, it wasn't funny the first time. It's not funny the second time. Well, HT, an idea recently went through her head. That's not surprising. There was nothing there to stop it. Ah. Chris, a book has been written about him. How to be happy, though stupid. Yes. Chris, Chris <laughs> a book has been written about you. How to be happy, though stupid. Chris, you need to respond to him or he'll just keep I, on saying the same joke over and over again. Boy, I wish that were true. There. I like that we're just hearing Chris's dog in the background. Yeah. Well, oh, Chris, it's their dinner time, so they're uh, hungry. Chris's dog... He keeps his head when everyone around him is losing his. No wonder he's just too dumb to understand the situation. First of all, I have two dogs, and they're both female. Second of all, I have nothing. dog, she keeps her head when everyone around her is losing hers. No wonder she's just too dumb to understand the situation. Okay. Chris's second dog, she can, safely, <laughs> she can safely go into a wild country and have to buy headhunters. They'd have no interest in hers. Oh, well, good. I'm glad. Leave my dog alone. Well, Peter's dog, Pixel, <laughs> uh, she's the one that must have a sixth sense. There's no evidence of the other five. And Peter's other dog, Gizmo, if it wasn't for the changes in weather, she'd never be able to start a conversation. It's a, a He's a he. Oh. Gizmo, if it wasn't for the change in weather, he'd never be able to start a conversation. H-E-D-F-Pets. I don't have pets. I'm alone.
HT's loneliness like Venus de Milo. Beautiful. <laughs> all there. Uh, Jacob, do, do you memorize any of these and use them in public situations? Like social Peter, situations? I don't give away my best material for free. You are doing it here. I'm doing it on the clock for SlashFilm.com. I'm being paid right now. Yeah, well, thank thank God, uh, you know, Ben and Brad aren't here because they they get to escape this. Yeah, they'll get double insults next week. Okay. <laughs> Bye, guys. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>